in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Brewski, episode 89. Welcome, welcome. Are you awake now? You've, you've been tired this week. I'm concerned about you. Yeah, man. I don't know. I just uh, maybe need more coffee and less triple IPA. That's probably the solution right there. You gotta stay awake at night. <laughs> Stop canceled on me last night. Yeah, I was exhausted. I'm like, you know, I don't want to record unless I'm really up on the energy game. And I just did not have it. Are you feeling energetic tonight? Yeah, I feel much better, actually. It's a whole bunch of good stuff to talk about, so I'm ready to go. Okay. How you, about you? Yeah. Are you feeling good? I'm feeling, well, I'm feeling okay. I've had my own issues with energy this week because I've been driving into the office for the last three days. And it's been oh brutal. My God. Like, the oh, mental toll that it takes for me to drive from my house into Boston and Cambridge is just unbelievable. So is this the first time in how long? I've gone into the office like once or twice for like an hour here or there just to catch up with uh, with different people that were in town to say hi. But this is the first time like I've really been in there. The commute. Had meetings and had to like sort of sit there for like eight hours and actually work. And I had to do that like three days. So like rush hour? Yeah. I did. The whole yeah. thing? So I had to get in early oh, man. and drive home and stuff. And it was like an hour and a half to get from Cambridge back to my house. <laughs> did you get the sneaker runs in in the morning? I ran locally at my house and then took a shower. So I, I did sneak in some runs. Wow. I had to get up earlier. There you go. I had to get That's up an good. hour earlier. And it's, it's a, but it is kind of sad. Like the office that I work in is like a, we opened the office up in October of 2019. Mm-hmm. And then we worked until March of 2020. I mean, this is a brand new building. Like this is like- I've seen it. Picture whatever you see on like Silicon, uh, Silicon Valley, like that TV show, like those offices that they, it's basically set up like that, but now there's nobody in there. Huh. Isn't that funny? Yeah, I got a good look at it from uh, a trip to the Marriott. Is the Marriott right across the way there? Yes. Yeah. And the room I was in actually had a view of the Akamai building. I'm like, oh, wow, yes. there it is. Yeah, you can see it right there anyway, but that sucks, uh, anyway, bro. made it through, so it's a fun week. Yeah. Um, How was the, uh, the gas? <laughs> you have to fill up. The, yeah, I did. I actually, and it's weird because I usually only fill up like when I'm driving up to New Hampshire, but I did, I did fill up and you know, it's, I don't know, it was $3 a gallon. So gas isn't too bad right now. Yeah. That's good. Oh, Daphne's here. Daphne's going to hang out with me. Hey, hey Daphne. She's a producer. Uh, associate producer anyway uh breaking news so we have a bunch of like miscellaneous stuff i have a feeling this is gonna take us like a half hour before we get to the show opener but before we even get into this do we want it like you you have to answer for like the scheduling issues again um well in terms of the guests that canceled or what do you mean yeah yeah well yes that's true um I was going to mention it a little later, but I mean, this has been week number two. We try to get Ty on, but unfortunately, Ty had a, a family um, uh, event that had a, that popped up unexpectedly, so he was obligated to attend that. So uh, he will be on soon enough, but we're hoping to uh, sort of 
set the table for a really good topic with him and he'll be in soon enough, but he's just one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like technical difficulties, scheduling challenges. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just been everything. It, it definitely happens. So yeah. anyway, Stomp, um, breaking news. Um, yeah, this just came out today. So in the first session of 2023, the New Hampshire State Senate, uh, I don't know if anybody's been following this, but um, I heard about it about a month ago. SB 13, uh, the Senate unanimous, unanimously passed this bill, and it basically permits the New Hampshire Department of Motor Vehicles to suspend the driver's license of anybody who refuses to make payments after fishing game charges them for the cost uh, involved with rescuing that person. So that's a that's a pretty big story. So I don't know if it's already passed the house or not. Um, it's you know obviously bicameral, but I'm sure it's going to pass if, if it's this unanimous. Um, I think it makes sense. I mean, I think the well, I'm of two minds of this. One, I think that yeah, you need to have some tools to give sort of punitive actions for people that aren't paying their fines. I think that this is such a small scale thing that. You know, it's only going to impact maybe less than 10 people a year, if even if even that amount. But I also do struggle a little bit because I do know when I was a young person, like I got like in over my head with like speeding, speeding tickets and like parking tickets and that stuff. And mm-hmm. I think I got a ticket in Maine at one point and I tried to renew my license in Massachusetts because I think I got a summons to basically go up to court in Maine. Yeah. I didn't... Um, I didn't go there and I don't think I knew that you could just sort of say like, give me a fine or whatever. So when I went to renew my license in Massachusetts, I couldn't renew my license because Maine and Massachusetts have a reciprocity deal. And I think New Hampshire does as well, where if you have a speeding ticket, you can't renew your license. And, um, you know, it's just like, I, I do feel like there's certain people that sort of get in these financial hardships because of these continued like fines and then penalties and then they lose their insurance and it becomes this spiral where Mm. it's a financial thing where you know i I just don't know if new hampshire offers options for people that just truly can't afford to pay these whether they could like work it off like you know pick up trash on the side of the road or do whatever they they can for um well i i'd like to cover that before we move on to the next topic because i do want to just tell listeners what the process is on fishing yeah. games end. It's actually yeah, really true. interesting. Um, if, if there's a rescue and fishing game determines that somebody was negligent, what they do is um, they determine the, the actual cost for the rescue. And you're talking like overtime cost for gas and things like that. And then what happens, the Colonel has to approve uh, the, the billing. So they draft up a billing memo and that has to be approved by uh uh, Colonel Jordan at the moment. And then from there, that gets sent over to the state attorney general. And the state attorney general has to sign off on that bill. Um, so there's a quite a process to it. The, the really interesting thing about this is, though, Fishing Game offers payment plans. So with this story in mind, I think what they're saying is that if somebody has signed on to a payment plan, acknowledging that they're at fault or, or agreeing to a payment plan and then they, you know, neglect to pay, that's when this will kick in. They, the, a person still has the right to take, you know, their case uh, to trial to one of the lower courts, 
but I'm I'm assuming that this means that there was a plan in place and they just failed to pay. And in that case, it gets sent over to the, to the DMV and they get uh, you know shut down. Got it. Got it. So they have they have some options. I do. Like, yeah, they I, do. I feel like I'm a little bit more like. I know our town recently like reduced all the speeds on the roads to 25 miles an hour and everybody was sort of cheering about it and they're saying like, okay, well, this is so great. It's going to improve safety. And I'm sort of like, you know, if you look at the accident data and like the, you know, fatality data in our town, like there's never any, you know, there's maybe one or two fatalities in the last five years. There's mm-hmm. a you know couple hundred accidents maybe over the course of like the last couple of years. And I feel like a lot of times, like when they put these laws in place, really who benefits is, um, you know, the, the speeding fines that the towns get for giving tickets is like nothing compared to the benefits that the insurance companies get for the points increasing on people's oh, yeah, insurance yeah. and it's basically like I think I read somewhere that it's like you pay three times the amount of your insurance when you get like speeding tickets and points or something like that because it just stays on for like five years so it, I don't want to benefit insurance companies on this type of stuff but mm-hmm. I think in, in the case of the fines you're talking about it sounds like they really have to go out of their way to not pay something to, to get get in trouble. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm in favor of it. <laughs> Personally, I think it's yeah, fine. No, I think it's fine. Um and it's it's small numbers. Yeah. So And there's actually an interesting Reddit link too with a whole bunch of different takes on it. So we'll we'll give you that uh, link in the show notes. Awesome. All right. So next topic stop. This is huge. Are you sitting down? I'm sitting down with Daphne and she's crawling all over me. For goodness right. sakes. Well, this is huge. And I want to thank my friend Andy, who we got to get her on at some point because she um, she she's out in Missouri. She runs the uh, the Ozark, um, one of the one of the bigger uh, Ozark trail groups. And, and she had sent this over in a group that we're in. And I, I thought that this would be very exciting news for you and Mrs. Stomp. Yeah. There's a new TV show out on the Hallmark Channel it's called Love <laughs> the in Glacier National, a national park's romance. Oh, Listen to the plot line. Okay. An avalanche forecaster, forecasting expert brings her new technology to Glacier National Park where she faces, faces pushback from the director of Mountain Rescue who's trained in intuition and common sense. <laughs> so basically it's like a female forecasting expert that's like bringing her new toys to like forecast avalanches. Right, but he's working on intuition. And then she runs into like the crusty search and rescue guy <laughs> and then romance ensues. This is going to be awesome. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> I didn't know Hallmark was still a thing. Oh, it is, yeah. So, um, Excuse me, I still have my little cough here, believe it or not. Ugh. Yeah, I don't think I've ever talked about this, but I am like a, I don't even know if I'm a closet, but I'm like a, I love the holiday movies, you know, those <laughs> holiday, like Christmas romance movies. I oh, love totally. Them. So uh, I think that like this one would be right up our alley. Yeah. Um, I'll have to definitely catch that. Amazing. Yeah, it, it's on Saturday, January 28th. Matter of fact, not me. We may need to do a whole show just watching this and doing like the oh, mystery commentary? theater 3000 or whatever that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's actually a really good idea. We'd probably get sued for copyright, though. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to see. 
Um, okay, so anyway, Lovin Glacier National Park. It's on January 28th on the Hallmark Channel. I got to see if I even have the Hallmark Channel, but I'm excited. Yeah, that's super cool. That's a good one. Good fun. What would be like if we were going to make like a, a a Hallmark romance movie based in the White Mountains? Like, what would the, what would the plot be? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good I have good an question. Idea. Oh, do you? I have an idea. Yeah. I like, let's hear I it. feel like if. I feel like we'd have to in, in, integrate cats into it, but like somebody basically <laughs> like a, it would be like a, a cat gets loose and um, it would be like, it would climb up into the mountains and, you know, you'd have this lady who was like a visiting from the city. So she was visiting like Waterville Valley from like Andover or something like that. Right. <laughs> okay. And then her cat gets loose and she's running around trying to find the cat and the only person that like could, and then she finds it up in a tree and then the only person that could save the cat is this like crusty like um snowmaker guy from Waterville Valley and <laughs> he find he like basically begrudgingly like saves her cat and then she's on vacation in Waterville Valley and has a bunch of different calamities and he always has to bail her out and then they go to the old they they basically have a romance and then they'll go to the, you know, uh, they'll drive around and they'll see the old woodpecker restaurant and decide that they're going to rehab it together <laughs> oh and get God. married. <laughs> you got like a whole screenplay ready to go. Yeah, that was at the top of my, that was off the top was, of my head. That so. was impressive. Like somebody spike so, your drink or what? What's going on know. here? If was... anybody's listening and they're like, they have some <laughs> ability to make a movie, that would be a great student movie. Uh, oh, Lynn, Lynn's probably listening. Yes. Lynn will get right on it, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Enough with this nonsense. So um, I, we've got a hiking update. So I have a clarification on our last episode. I can't remember who gave me this heads up. I'll have to, I'll, I'll give them a shout out on the show notes. But mm. I had mentioned when we were talking about unpopular opinions, I had mentioned that somebody had talked about a, an abandoned trail in a a bushwhack to a waterfall, and I called it Hitchcock. It's actually called Hawthorne Falls. Okay. And oh yeah, oh, and shout out to it was listener Joe Joseph. So thank you Joseph for that. Gotcha. Uh, and so, it happens. This is a good one for you, um, and I'll link this. There's an article here that is the Lost Waterfalls of the White Mountains. Okay. Have you heard of this place, by the way? Is it a website? You mean or Hawthorne? Hawthorne, Hawthorne Falls. Falls. I have not. Falls. Doesn't okay. ring a bell. All right. Um, so it Hawthorne Falls lies near th- the 3,000-foot contour line in a north-facing ravine on the side of Mount Garfield. Okay. The, the drainage is unnamed on most maps, but commonly goes by the name Garfield Stream. So to reach Har- Hawthorne Falls, basically take the Gill River Trailhead, and then you're going to take a... Um, I guess you're going to turn off of that trailhead yeah, and go past Garfield stream. And then I guess look to your right for a pathway. And, you know, so it may be a good bushwhack for you to check out. Okay. So it's more like a <clears throat> broken in path, a little hurt path. Yeah. Probably. I think it's, it's between Gill river and Garfield trail. It's okay. like right in that, that ravine in the middle. That sounds good. I do have a list of other waterfalls that are pretty hard to find. Like there's one as you head up towards the B-18 bomber on Waternomy and a few others that people might be interested in. I can uh, get dig up that list of mine. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely do that, and I'll include this. So this article has Hawthorne Falls. It has um, Old Zealand Falls in Bethlehem. Yeah. Bridesmaid Falls in Franconia. Yes, yes. Bride, bridesmaid is on the western side of the Kinsmans. Yeah. That's then a neat Cascades one. of Appalachia in Randolph, which is up north. Hmm. So check it out. But I, I do feel like this one, Hawthorne Falls, that might be worth checking out. It looks like a pretty, pretty cool cascading waterfall. Yeah. Anyway, so sorry about that if somebody was looking for uh, for more details. Mm. Count on us. <laughs> the accurate information. Yeah, yeah. Another one, um, another update here, Stomp. So somebody had sent in a correction. We had talked about, when did we talk about um, protocols for poop? We've talked about it many times, but um, this was a story in reference to out west, they were um, they were getting frustrated with all the visitors leaving their feces behind and stuff like that. And we brought up a, a packet that they're using that visitors can use to dispose of their waste. It had like the you know little shovel, and little bag, and everything else. I forget the name of it. <clears throat> yeah, but anyway, this 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 listener had. Um a few comments, but the one thing that they wanted to call out is that um, the use of a cat hole, which is basically digging like six or eight inches down and then doing your business and then covering it up, the use of a cat hole is secondary. Is, yeah, secondary. I guess that's not the official leave no trace process, but it's also, I think, based on location, I think out west it doesn't work. You're supposed to like pack it out. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I haven't even looked at the, the specific rules in the White Mountain National Forest, but I feel like below tree line, there's enough sort of like nitrogen in the soil or whatever that it's reasonable to use a cat hole. But maybe it's not officially allowed. You are supposed to pack it out. I don't know. It depends on the location from what, from what I've seen. There are some, uh, if, if not many, that uh, suggest using either method whether it be cat hole or the, the pack it out. Um, some of the negatives for um, d- using the cat hole would be like in winter. Um, it's just not going to get deep enough, that type of thing. And depending on the sunny side versus the shady side, you know, it may not decompose as quickly. Um, this one person had stated something about animals digging the feces and the the non-biodegradable toilet paper so you could use biodegradable toilet paper so there's a whole bunch of factors but the from what i understand there's two methods so the packet out is preferred but it's not you know against the rules by any means uh in in the national forests for the cat hole yeah yeah. i definitely have known some friends and some scenarios where dogs have gotten a hold of something oh, so yeah that's a mess but i'm also like of two minds of that like okay yeah the dog got a hold of it but if the dog was near you then it wouldn't be an issue so yeah that's very interesting yep all right so the next one here stomp this you may not care about this one but i do so strava strava is an app that people use so i personally use a, a i have a garmin forerunner 935 which um, anybody that's using a, a Sun 2 or a Garmin watch, typically they have native apps on them where you download an activity. Like if I go running or if I go hiking, I basically set my GPS and then I'll have like 
it, it basically ports into this Garmin Connect app that will show me all the details, like how many miles I went, um, what the elevation is essentially. So I can use that, but Strava is an app that actually lays on top of, of these different GPS tracking platforms. And it's a kind of a social app where people can give you like thumbs up. You can essentially just port over your activities on Strava. And the nice thing about it is that it's, it's, it doesn't care what platform you're using. Like it can connect to a Fitbit, an iPhone, or an iWatch. It can connect to um, a Garmin, a Sun, to any device that you have that records a GPS track. You can you can push it on a Strava. It's got some cool features that I like to use. I like the flyby features, mm-hmm. um, and it's got pretty good mapping. So a lot of people will use it, and it's like a monthly cost or an annual cost. I don't even know what the cost is. Um but they've announced that they're increasing their prices at this point. But really, it's kind of a weird rollout where people have been upset that they, they aren't disclosing exactly what the what the new prices will be. So hmm. um, DC Rainmaker had put an article together basically just sort of being frustrated, saying that Strava wasn't giving information, only that they were going to be announcing an increase and it was going to be a subscription increase anywhere between a 15 to 70% Increase depending on the region, your billing type, and when you signed up. So huh. if you do use the Strava paid features, uh, just be aware that um, likely this will um, you know, this will hit in the next couple of months. I guess in addition to that, they've laid off about 15% of their staff. And, um, you know, I think that this whole industry across like the GPS technology – I think the the bike training Wahoo specialized these different companies it calls out a lot of them are consolidating they're under cost pressure and I, mm-hmm. my guess is that like a company like Strava might get acquired eventually interesting well yeah growing pains yeah very interesting so yeah yeah I think I do, I I have an account up there but I really haven't used it I just didn't don't have the gear to really use it when I'm out there doing my stuff so yeah, I may have to look at it. Like I, I do enjoy it. You know, people give you a thumbs up, and you can follow people that you know. Like right. the best, this the reason you do it is because if your friend is using an iWatch, and then you're using a Garmin, like if I just if I'm just in my Garmin world, then I don't see that person's activity. So Strava basically connects across all these platforms. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't know if it's worth like whatever whatever the cost is per month. Yeah, well, keep us posted. Yep. Um, so, Stomp, you probably need to cover this next next oh. article that we pulled in here. Yeah, that's my favorite, favorite place on earth next to Crane Beach in Massachusetts. But um, apparently this, there's a lot of uh, a firestorm going on here over a proposed project in Adams. And um, basically at the Gould Farm, which is at the, the base of Mount Greylock, there was... Um, an approval by the town of Adams to have a developer uh, basically create a campground at this Glen area. And um, the plan is to build 35 luxury cabins with granite countertops, showers, marble bathrooms, etc., etc. There will be 19 mirrored caverns, and um, the plan also includes nine Airstream trailers that are 22 feet long. And... Uh, 
it's literally at the base of Mount Greylock. So you can access a lot of the, the Greylock trails from this region. And the town is just flipping their lid about this. And some of the comments are just basically like, you know, to the, you know, what happened to the rustic idea or the rustic campsites or, you know, no, no trail is over 15 feet. So I guess it, it there's a risk that it's going to really sort of diminish the the rural quiet feel out there this obnoxious plan but uh, we shall see it's very interesting apparently there's uh, let's see a state resource and should be a concern to everyone in the commonwealth the 35 individuals and four organizations signed below are requesting another public meeting so it's just this extended battle going on here in the heart of the the Berkshires. I went to school in North Adams. I, yeah. I, did, I did a little bit of, I did some hiking up on Greylock, but I wasn't in the hiking back then that much. Unfortunately, I wish I had taken advantage of it. But, yeah. um, you know, North yeah. Adams wasn't exactly like the most pristine place in the world and Adams never was either. So, yeah. but I think that's different than like in the, the, the wooded section. So who knows? Sure, sure. It reminds me of the whole, you know, cog development, stuff like that. It's just a lot of that stuff happening in and around. And this whole proposal with Waterville, I guess I'm just a little sensitive to it right now. You know, expanding the ski slopes. I don't know. Not in my backyard, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Cheers to that. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, well. Oh, boy. Um. Okay, so this next one here, you put this. So we've got, I think I got another article about Yellowstone, but uh, 15 miles from civilization, someone removed Yellowstone snowmobiler, snowmobiler's ignition key. Yeah. I mean, there's just a dispute as to whether or not this couple should have been on this trail that's uh, utilized by like tours and this and that. So apparently, this couple went out. Understanding, they, they, they understood that they could go use this uh, snowmobile path. And they ended up coming up upon um, uh, one of these tours. And the people that were riding in the tour apparently just flipped out on them and ultimately at one point hid the snowmobile starting key in the front portion of the tread underneath. So thankfully this couple found the, the starter ignition key or they would have been stuck 15 miles out, which is pretty, that's pretty shitty if you think about it getting stuck 15 miles out in this part of the, the world. It's all pretty outrageous. So they're complaining about it, and it's an emerging story. Um, I don't know if people know that or not, but those the newest sleds don't start. It's like a uh, concave little uh, glove that fits over this metal knob, and without that on there, that sled's not moving anywhere. So you lose it, you're in trouble. Interesting. So their theory is that the the people they got into the sort of argument with took yes. the key and hid it on them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there was nobody else out there at the time, so uh, they're saying it looks yeah. like a, a malicious act. Um, and this is yeah, again that is not cool. Yeah, not cool. Speaking of sledding, I should be guiding starting up tomorrow, Saturday, with all the snow coming in. So I hope somebody joins me for a tour. <laughs> I know. Now, how does it work? Do you have to go out and like um, ride the trails and get them smoothed down first before the uh, the yahoos from Massachusetts get on there? No, no. All the local clubs have groomers, and they get out overnight and in the evening, and actually during the day as well sometimes. So they they're constantly grooming the snow. So it should be ready. It should be open this weekend. I'm 
praying to God, but next week we're looking at it like 15 inches of snow. So it's, I think the season's officially going to get going. Okay. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping for you guys. I oh, think me too. I, I can't wait. I, I know we were supposed to get rain tonight and luckily it is, it's switched over. So the snow line actually dropped into Northern Massachusetts and it looks like we're going to get sn- a snowy mix. Yeah. Between now and about 4 a.m. And my daughter, Megan, is um, putting the spoon under her pillow and has got her clothes on inside <laughs> out when she goes to bed tonight. So she's hoping to have school canceled tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, all right. So next one here is a... Um, Interesting like I said, story. this is going to go a little bit long. So hiker yeah, it's all right. stumbles on a dinosaur bone. Yeah, can you imagine? So the, this hiker um, stumbled upon a bone and ended up finding other bones once um, people came out to investigate. So this is out in Colorado, and excavators found uh, one more bone, actually. So it was in the Royal Gorge region, which is famous for uh, prehistoric fossil remains. And... Um, I don't know. That's super cool. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, people find stuff up here sometimes, but not that large, like the the finds out west. Pretty neat story. Have well, you ever found anything when you're hiking stomp? No, just those like, uh, I forget what they're called, but you know, when you have a small stone and there's just an imprint of a small little prehistoric bug on there, I've, I've found those in the past, but um, certainly no bones or anything like that. Yeah, I've never found anything. Well, the only thing, I mean, I didn't find it. Mindy, Mindy and Beth Lynn did, but we did find that backpack from the, that was only oh. like five years old. <laughs> yeah, well, this is like 150 million years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've never found like a, uh, like a uh, arrowhead or anything like that? Nope. And I'm sure we've seen a million of them. I mean, based upon the finds that like Casey and others have uh, lucked into, they're everywhere. Yep. Yeah. Neat um, stuff. All right, this next one. So uh, Backpacker Magazine put out this article, Stomp. I wanted to run this by you. Yeah. So they talk about the, uh, you know, Emily Sotelo was a 19-year-old hiker that had um, died on Franconia Ridge in, on, in November. And then we had another gentleman that died. Uh, I think he was in his late 20s. He died on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. So this prompted Backpacker Magazine to write an article sort of, um, covering both of those stories and uh, take the angle about basically saying like when hikers die, why are we so quick to judge? And I thought that this would be sort of interesting to get your perspective on Stomp. I think me personally, I feel like I'm probably more guilty. Like historically, I think I've, I've talked about this on the show before, but I think you know originally the whole sounds like a search and rescue was a joke among a few friends to sort of say like, you know, we'd hear somebody planning on doing a hike in an area and we'd be like, you know, they don't look like their experience. Like, it sounds like a search and rescue is going to happen. But over time, I think I've become much more, you know, my empathy level has become, I think, that of a normal human being when it comes to this stuff. And I understand that there's a, a whole big picture around these things and that, you know, you, you have to approach these with empathy and understanding. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I do think that, like... The crux of the article was basically like, why didn't they do X, Y, and Z? If they had done that, you know, they they would have survived. And I know what to do, and it could never happen to me. And the point of the article is that it, this stuff could happen to anybody. 
in that we're all taking risk out there. But I don't know what your your perspective is on this. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the article doesn't really touch upon social media, does it? I mean, what is the context of this article? Is it just people in general? or Because yeah, my big issue is social media uh, sort of promotes that whole thing, just Facebook in particular. Um, it can be a, a cesspool for judgment and pre-guessing and just speculation. And I think yeah. that's the biggest problem. Um, well, I think it, it, it specifically calls out the New England hiking groups on Facebook um, and the writer basically says that they were relieved to see most of the comments about Emily's death, um, and there were hundreds of them were compassionate. Uh, yeah. People talked about how shocked they were. They sent all kinds of thoughts and prayers. Um, you know, there was a bunch of sort of helpful messages around gear checklists, links to GPS advice, devices, etc. Um, and then there was some what the writer calls self-aggrandizing commenters who announced everything that you yeah. know, Emily had done wrong. Uh, yeah, that's um, a big problem. Yeah, clothing and, and whatnot. And I think there's certainly some people that, you know, come from it judgmentally. Um, you know, I know that, you know, there was a lot of questions about sort of the headlamp lighting situation and what, what she had used for lighting and uh, and how the, the sort of you know the i guess the the whole getting dropped off and and what that that entailed with um with her mom but um most of the comments i read were very sympathetic and encouraging and hopeful but yeah there's always going to be a few people i think that are i guess smarter than everybody else right but again i think it's cultural uh, just the headline of this story is why are we so quick to judge i mean without half of these groups and social media it, it it wouldn't happen. I mean, there'd be no conversation about it other than you and your family or whatever. It's just this this automatic ability to put out your opinion about every single damn thing. It's just the culture. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, we had a podcast where we talk about all this stuff, but I think we've tried to... I know I personally... I think you've always been here, but I've always been sort of more... I think judgmental about this stuff. And I've definitely in the past been that guy that's like, Oh, that would never happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. But I think as I've started, the thing that really clicked for me was when I started collecting the data, the reason I started collecting the data on search and rescue is that people were constantly getting on these social media groups and saying, you know, we'd have one incident and people would be like search and rescue is out of control. And I'd say, is search and rescue out of control or is this just the reaction to one incident? Yeah. Right. And what I found over time is I was like, search and rescue events are actually pretty consistent year over year. Like the volume doesn't change. It, it's, you get streaks. It's definitely like December, this winter was very streaky, November, December this year. But for the most part, the volumes don't change much. And that has, to, you know, the volumes of total events deaths on trail fatalities you know mm -hmm. doesn't change that much year over year but it also sort of piqued my interest to say what can we do to get the message out to keep people a little bit more safe what clicked for me is <laughs> dragging people out of the woods yeah you get a yeah. level of empathy that you may not have otherwise and uh <laughs> yeah spend your weekend dragging somebody out of the woods for several hours and you might be less to, less quick to judge. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of what, you know, that's probably what part of what's turned me around too, around, um, 
you know, you just sort of, you know your friends are, that are out there, not just you, but other people I know that are on search and rescue, and you kind of, you get a little bit of a different perspective. So we're certainly yeah. not perfect, but... You know, I, I think that this article is interesting. I'll link it in the show notes, and well, it's a good. You know, probably it, when Ty does come back, we can we can revisit this. Oh one. yeah, absolutely. It's an important conversation, though, and I think it's you know the recent events have really spurred on this topic, and we're going to touch upon a couple things tonight and set Ty up, and um, it's a good conversation. It's important. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the next bullet here, Stump, we have advertised with Slasher. Are we looking for more advertisers? Oh, yeah. If you're interested in promoting your uh, stuff, your gear, your merch, whatever, your project, uh, let us know. You can send us a email inquiring about that. Um, and we have a really cool community. I mean, it's bursting at the seams here with hikers and adventurers throughout New England and the Northeast in general. So if you're looking to reach that community, then uh, we really do have some reasonable rates and um, good results so far. So it's super cool. So just drop an email at slasherpodcast.com, at gmail.com, sorry, S-L-A-S-R podcast at gmail.com. Very good. Um, so Stomp, we, I get a lot of feedback from people that like the unpopular opinion segment last week, so I, <laughs> I, I got another one. I've got worst backpacking advice, <laughs> Appalachian Trail edition here. So okay. I picked up. A, there was a couple of discussions across the internet, so I wanted to run these by you. So this is again backpacking advice or bad backpacking advice, Appalachian Trail edition. So this won't be just New Hampshire, but the first one is believing people who say that you're almost there. That's just general hiking advice. Like, don't believe anybody, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely no. Don't yeah. listen. Yeah. Uh, people who say that boots should be worn year-round. Huh. I'm a boots guy year-round. Yeah. I'm Are you, oh, you're talking on trail, though, rather than like yeah. trail runners? Yeah, I, I like immediately like switch to trail runners once once it gets to be mud season. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I the only time wear I wear boots. boots is like winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the next one is there's a there's a there's a train of thought that Virginia is like a flat area to hike. So a lot of the through hikers are told that well, once you get into Virginia, it's really flat, and people <laughs> say that's just a lie. Yeah. What's out there for high points on the AT? Is that McAfee knob? Is that Virginia? I think that is like McAfee knob. And like Lynn was talking about that last week about like that, that section. There's yeah. a, some devil. I can't remember what it is, but hmm. um, yeah, I think that's McAfee knob. Uh, the next one is uh, people who tell you never to hike solo, which I agree. I mean, it's a balance, obviously. Yeah. You got to know what you're doing. Sure, especially on massive adventures like that. Yep. Um, ultra Lone Peaks, which are trail runners, are the best hiking shoes. So these are really popular shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, Stomp, I think you can probably talk to this, but I think what I understand about this is the reason a lot of people love these shoes, but there's a lot of people who start their through hikes off. Yep. They look at like the best trail runners list. They get these Ultra Lone Peaks, 
there's zero drop shoes. Right. So they've never hiked in zero drop shoes. And inevitably what ends up happening is that um, maybe their Achilles or their calves are tight right. and they're overstretching their Achilles. They're getting Achilles tendonitis. So sure. you have to be careful with these zero drop shoes. I don't know all the mechanics around it. You probably know better than I do. Mm-hmm. So Lone Peaks, Lone Peaks are zero drop? Correct. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you're not used to those, I mean, every every shoe has to have a little break-in period if you're going to use them for something like that, the AT or even hiking. But yeah, what is it about zero? Is it is it my assumption that zero drop shoes they'll stretch your Achilles out too much if you're not used to them, right? Sure, yeah. Like if you go from a boot to a zero, then you're dealing with quite a change in the ankle dynamics, and there's more stress and pull on the Achilles, like you'd mentioned. Yeah, I think just in general, like a through hike, like I would not do a through hike unless I had my sneakers dialed in mm-hmm. and you know, had had used the trail runners I was going to use and, and pretty frequently. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no question. But the body um, and, needs a period of uh, change and adjustment for drastic changes like that. You know? Yeah. And I just wish the listeners could like see behind you like the, the associate producer is just like, she's luxuriating on the couch. She's like oh, stretching yeah. out. She's scratching the couch. It's just, she's, she's living so her best cute. life. Yeah, she'll be she asleep is. in about an hour. Uh, she yeah. just dozes off to the mellifluous tones yeah. of my voice. Yeah, even though Stomp, like he's got his lights on tonight, usually he's in the pitch black, but like all I can really see is like just spots of white and then Daphne's just mostly dark well she's keeping an eye on me she's she's the assistant executive producer so yep yep she likes it um all right here's another one is that you don't need to be in shape to start a through hike you'll get on shape when you get on the trail absolute bullshit you have to have some level of preparedness and training it may not be 30 miles a day type of preparedness but you you can't just go from couch to at I'm sure some people do. I absolutely yeah. believe that, but I think it's it's the exception rather than the rule. Sure. I think the rule is generally like if you hit the AT and you're not in shape, you're going to be you're going to get halfway up Amicalola Falls and then tap out, which happens all the time. You'll see these people that are you know putting their YouTube channels together, talking about how excited they are to do the AT, yeah. and then they get halfway up the falls on the first three miles, and then they're done. Well, my my angle on it is you're you're going to be more prone to injury. You know, the muscles aren't ready for it. Ligaments aren't strong enough for it. Your endurance isn't strong enough for it. There's so many reasons, so many things that could go wrong if you're not at least prepared for it to a degree. Yes. Uh, the next next worst backpacking advice, you need to carry a gun. <laughs> Have we ever talked about this before? No, we haven't. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. Are you a gun guy? I'm not a gun guy. Not when I'm hiking, but there have been okay. occasions where I've gone on pretty wild bushwhacks where I did take one with me. And there was a period okay. where I was stumbling upon weird, you know, just like, I don't know, refuges in the woods that people are hiding out at. And that got me sort of wigged out for a period of time. Because people do hide in the woods from the law, you know, felons, yeah, or whatever yeah, else. I mean, that's pretty common. So... There Stomp is that. takes out John Rambo in the woods. That's <laughs> right. But t- typically I don't. But there have been a, one or two occasions where I have gone out packing heat. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I saw a guy, we were hiking, me and my friend Tom were hiking like out to um, isolation. And 
I was talking to a guy and he had one of those like holsters on his chest or whatever. So yeah. we were just talking and um, I actually didn't even notice the gun at first. And then I saw it, it was like a really small gun. Yeah. And I was kind of like, I don't think that like that's going to do any good against a beer. You need a bigger, you need like a, a bigger weapon. But um, yeah. that's the only time I've ever seen anyone with a gun that I, I mean, that I, I'm sure would be past people all the time that are packing, but you don't see it. He just happened to have his holster right, right in the middle of his chest. Yeah. See, I, I, re- I, I compare it to hiking. I'm not hiking, but um, hunting. You know, you're, you're in the deep woods. It's a, it's slightly different than just being on trail. Like I wouldn't pack a gun on trail. Um, but anyway. Yeah. How much is a gun has to weigh? Like probably a good four or five pounds, I would think, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Unless you're carrying yeah. a rifle like a hunter. But um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting okay. stuff. Uh, the next one, worst backpacking advice. Um, and this goes both ways. So the sl- you should sleep with your food. Oh, that's absolutely foolish. <laughs> It is foolish, but I absolutely, absolutely know a lot of like through hikers that have done a lot of miles that just say that they screw it, they sleep with their food. That's so dangerous. Interesting. Dangerous. And, and they haven't had problems? I don't know. I mean, the, the, I would assume in the Smokies, like they have problems with beer. So everybody has to follow the same guidelines. I think in the Smokies, they have everybody has to stay at the shelters and they have cables to hang your food because those beers are much more attuned, I think, to humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only thing I've read about sleeping with your food, and I don't agree with this, and I always encourage people to hang or put it in a beer box if they're near storage. Um, but what I've read, the theory is, is that like the beers are scared of humans and that if you have your food near the, near you they won't go go near you because they're afraid of you but yeah. who knows huh so that's an interesting topic I mean we, we should move on but um, you know protection on the trail we've never really talked about that in detail you know options for protecting yourself whether it be mace or whatever we should do a segment on that sometime in the future yeah yeah well, that would be fun absolutely um the next one is you need hiking poles. You don't need hiking poles. Oh, wow. So That's take funny. your pick. That, well, yeah, you know where I am on that one. And by the way, I, during the buddy hiking buddies, uh, nobody had poles. I was really impressed. I mean, they had I didn't them. use them. Yeah, nobody yeah. did. Nobody really did. Yeah. Pretty neat. But uh, yeah, that's personal preference for sure. Yeah, I feel like if I was, and we'll talk about the buddy hike in a little while, but I feel like if I was using snowshoes, I do tend to use the poles just to stabilize myself, but huh. we didn't need them then. Yeah. Um, the ne- the This is the last one. Is you don't need a water filter. So this is, there are some yahoos that will just, you know, they basically um, think that they can pick out the safest water spots and the safest places to pull water and they drink without filtering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was talking to a kid that was doing the AT when I was in Grafton Notch. We were staying at the shelter, and he's, he said that he hasn't didn't fi- he stopped filtering in like Virginia, and he's like, I haven't I haven't filtered at all. He's like, I just <laughs> drink right out of the source, and I haven't had any issues. So. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Close. I don't recommend the it. Better. Yeah. Right. Yep. People do it, but anyway, that is worst backpacking advice. Appalachian Trail Edition. Huh. Good stuff. Yep. All right, on to um, some pop culture stuff here. Yeah, we'll, we'll just mention what we've been doing because we are running long here. I saw Hidden, which is by the Duffer Brothers, and it's an earlier movie. 
and it blew me away. It was fantastic. Duffer Brothers are involved with Stranger Things. This is a really great movie. It's with one of the Scars guards. Uh, there's like, what, 10 million Scars guards out there acting. It's one of those guys. So check it out. It's super cool, apocalyptic uh, type of theme. Um, Mrs. Stomp and I watched Tar with Kate Blanchett, and she's been winning some of the awards. This is pre-Oscar season. Keep an eye out for that. Have you seen that movie, Mike? I have not. Absolutely fantastic. Best acting I've seen in ages. Um, you know, we'll leave it at that. Um, how about Last of Us? Did you get to see that one finally on HBO from the video game? I did. I did. Uh, so for the listeners, me and Stomp were like texting back and forth on Sunday night uh, <laughs> in anticipation of the show. Yeah. And I think you texted me like right before it was ready to, it, so it comes on at nine o'clock. You must have watched it right at nine o'clock because mm-hmm. you were like messaging me and I had to tell you like, you need to, you need to stop. I haven't yeah. started watching it yet. I was like 45 minutes behind you. I th- yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert, spoiler yes. alert. So I thought it was great. I, I saw most of the video game. My daughters were playing it back in the day and this was well after my video game stint. So I was just watching them, but um, it's, it's very good. I think the acting's good and uh, it's setting up for a decent season. One thing that annoyed the hell out of me, it's like very much with like audio production, we'll use plugins like reverb and delay and whatever else the producers decided to plug in this shaky cam on the entire show. So basically if you watch the outskirts of your TV screen, you'll see it moving constantly. So it's, it's like this AI plugin that they will apply to whatever they capture on film, but it absolutely drove me nuts. Uh, that was my one and only complaint, but otherwise, yeah, I didn't notice. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but I I think my complaint is that it's, it's a little bit of sort of been there, done that, like you have here, that it's like I Am Legend, World War Z, mm-hmm. uh, Walking Dead. It's similar. There's a little bit of that, like, you know, I've seen this play before. But, sure. You know, I, I like it so far. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know how it ends, but everybody that's seen the endings really spoke highly of it. It's just touching, emotional. So I'm looking forward to the end and how it resolves. It's supposed to be really good. Yeah, yeah. And the other issue that I struggle with is that with HBO, like they release an ep- one episode a week, so Ugh. they're still in that old... I hate that. St- I like Netflix, where they just throw everything out and Absolutely. binge it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Absolutely. And last night, just finally, we saw the menu with Ray Fiennes on, I think that was HBO Max as well. It's quirky, it's dark comedy. Will Ferrell, I guess, was involved with the production. And Rafe is just a phenomenal Shakespearean actor. Everybody knows Rafe Fines by this time. So that's really highly recommended. You'll get a couple good laughs out of it, but it's a very interesting story. It's a quite a twist. And that's um, it. All right. Well, that was good for pop culture here, Stomp. <laughs> so I think uh, next up is coffee, uh, coffee talk here. Yeah, let's see. We have Kim and Littlefoot. We all... Have seen Littlefoot on Instagram. We got to get them on soon. They donated a coffee for us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kim and Littlefoot. Um, I might have misspelled this one, but I think it's Keith donated three and uh, listens to the podcast while hiking. Someone donated two and they listen as well while they're driving. Um, Let's see. John Eaxia. I'm sorry, people. Sometimes these these Instagram handles are so bizarre, I can't figure them out. But 
John Oniak Davis donated five. Uh, and this person is in South Africa listening to the podcast. How cool is that? And they're hoping to get back to New Hampshire. Keegs1614 donated three. Uh, duct tape, I love that name. Duct tape donated five and uh, also listens while driving north. Stacy, um, hiking feeds my soul. And uh, she listens while she grocery shops. So you're getting a little theme here. Uh, <laughs> James, James Landoli donated three. Thank you, James. And Linda, this just came in just about half an hour ago. Linda B donated three. And uh, she says, here's to finding your very own knobby, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I got to text my friend, my new friend, Steve. And, uh, get out there. I'm scheming. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to pull together. Like, I, I think I'm going to do a big one where I'm going to do Galehead North and South Twins. So I'm going to, I got to ping Steve. So Steve, if you're listening, my new friend, my new, my new knobby. We should bring up knobbies. Friend, so. <laughs> yeah. I should probably actually ask Nobby too if he wants to come. Well, Nobby's itching to get out there. He's feeling better. He's had some uh, medical trauma lately, so he's he's a fighter though. We'll see him back soon. I remember he was on he had the head wound. Like <laughs> poor guy, <laughs> oh, he's the best. Yeah, he's um, awesome. All right, so welcome to episode eighty nine of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week we are recapping the buddy hike that we did last weekend for newer hikers. Uh, we'll learn all about it. We're going to learn whether anybody actually showed up, whether it was a success. Did Shandy drive Mike crazy? Will we ever do this again? All the answers to these essential questions and <laughs> everything you ever wanted to know about group hike organization we'll cover tonight. So later in the show, we're going to do a short segment to revisit some unsolved mysteries of New Hampshire and the White Mountains. So we're going to talk about Mara Murray, little update on a missing hiker, Stefan Poritsu, and then uh, we'll revisit Michael Miller, who was a gentleman that went missing in the early 80s, MIT student that was hiking on uh, Mount Lafayette. So stay tuned for all the latest updates on these cases. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right. And uh, talking beer here. So what do you got, Stomp? Well, let's see. I want to give a plug out to CS Coffee briefly quick oh and, yeah uh, sorry about that yeah no problem hey we're all getting used to this new format here it's all good uh cs instant coffee zero waste instant coffee that comes in compostable packets perfect for the trail and home each packet makes about 20 ounces of coffee so you can take one of them on an overnight trip and make it oh and it makes two pretty good sized cups of coffee put it in your backpack find some hot water and you're good to go Learn more by going to our show notes or Google CS Instant Coffee, www.csinstant.coffee. And yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying not a coffee, but a brew. I'm back to my old uh, Burlington Beer Works here, and it's an Intangible Tides, and uh, it's a uh, double IPA, which is really tasty. Not bad. And I am drinking something from Widowmaker Brewing Company out of Braintree, Mass. It's called Blue Comet, which you had done the story about the comet yes. last week. So I was like, oh, I'll bring a comet beer. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, It's a New England IPA. It's 7.1% alcohol. And it's pretty tasty. Yeah, good stuff. And we have one notable hike. Um, if you want to tag Slasher on your hike, do so and you'll be considered for... Um, 
the weekly notable hike. So this week, um, Nick hikes and plays guitar, did Mount Hayes for his 37th out of 52 uh, on the 52 with a view list. So nice job, Nick. Thanks for tagging us too. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I remember getting up there in the like the last dirty dozen or so for the 52 with a view and it's it's the driving gets serious <laughs> once you start digging into that that list. Really? Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd say I remember when I hiked Mount Hayes, it was on one of the hottest days of the year and I was covered in sweat. Mhm. Where is Hayes? It is, that's the one where when you go, you cross, you, you leave the the, um, the Wildcat car to Mariah's mm-hmm. and you cross uh, Rattle River oh, and then you're yes. heading into Grafton Notch. It's the first peak on off to the left of the Appalachian Trail as you start heading up to Mount Success in that area. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Nice area. Yes. But I had I had teed up the whole idea that I was covered in sweat, so you could do the next advertisement. Oh, <laughs> do you like back sweat? I don't. I do not like back sweat, <laughs> dude. Sorry, I was just too into the story. Like, oh, all right. Well, we have our second sponsor back to back, and. Uh, Back sweat sucks in all types of weather and hikes. Not only is it uncomfortable, sweat is a risk factor, causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back. Check out Vaucluse's Cool Dry Backpack Airflow Frame, a backpack accessory that installs on your favorite pack, sizes 18 liters up to 65 liters and creates an airflow gap between you and your pack. Whether you're in hot or cold temps, even if you have a pack with a curved frame, the cool dry frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow. So visit vaucluesgear.com to order a cool dry frame today. And, uh, you know, honestly, we're moving into this buddy hike. A few people had those. Uh, yeah. And I got to check them out in person. They were looked super cool. Um, highly rated, man. I'm telling you, people are loving these things. Yeah, more and more I'm hearing from people that are using them and, and they're saying, you know, there's a lot of sweaty people that hike and a lot of them are coming <laughs> back and saying they're they're still sweaty, but like not so much sweaty in the back, which is nice. Yeah, and it's a nice design. You know, I was really curious. It's one thing to see it online uh, or discuss it, but it's another to actually get your hands on it and check it out. So it's very uh, discreet too. It's not like this humongous piece of gear that's hanging on your back. It's a very, you know, it's tucked in there and it's... Pretty petite. Slasher's hiking topic of the week. All right, so slasher topic of the week. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to do a recap here. So we did, me and Stomp did a, a hike with like about 30 other people last week. And uh, we're going to recap it. There was not 30 people in our group. We, we kept it low. Like it was like, less than 10 people in each group, I think. So it was like 25 people, 30 people total. Uh, but we did this buddy hike. So we, we I had posted this buddy hike on the Hiking Buddies Facebook group probably about two months ago. And I think the total number of people that had signed up, so you can basically say maybe or yes. I think I got like 90 people that had signed up. Right. And um, as a follow-up to anybody that had said yes, they were going... I sent out an, uh, a link to a Google sheet 
and um, asked people to fill out the Google Sheet. So I ended up getting around 30 people that filled out the Google Sheet. I pushed everybody else to like not going and just said, this is the 30 people that are going. And the nice thing is, is that within the groups, we had like anywhere from three to four experienced hikers that could lead and support the newer hikers. So it was almost like a 50-50 mix between experienced hikers and, um, you know, newer hikers. So mm-hmm. we ended up scheduling the groups to start an hour apart. So we had a 7.30 group, 8.30 group, and 9.30 group. And me and Stomp were in the 7.30 group, right, Stomp? Well, yeah. I mean, I sh- I showed up at seven thirty, so I missed the memo on it was a departure time of seven thirty. <laughs> oh well, I got some heat from several of the uh, hiking members, but hey, what can yes, you do? It was fine. I think we ended up getting on trail at like seven forty-five or so, and uh, but it was good. You know, I was hanging out. I was talking to some. Um, some some of the hikers like I was able to to walk uh, walk through like some of the gear with one of the hikers uh, John was kind of going through and showing me what he had and we were um you know I was I was having him pull some stuff out I was like yeah I don't think you're gonna need a couple of things he had like um an extra pair of pants and I was like I don't think you're gonna need the snow pants as a backup in this in this weather. And uh, there was a couple of other things like food that he had, which is pretty common. I think a lot of newer hikers will bring too much food with them. Yeah. So, uh, but it worked out good. So we headed up the trail at about 7.30. And I think our group, because it was it had snowed out the night before, some people that had headed up turned around because they weren't comfortable driving. But ultimately, I think we ended up heading out with like, was it seven or eight people in our group? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, good crew. Yeah. yeah. So we had, and we had a dog too. We had, she, so she and he helped us. So basically it, the, the experienced hikers in our group were me, Stomp yep. and Shandy, right? Uh, and Michael, Michael Methy too. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few. So we, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mike knew his stuff. Yeah. So we had four experienced winter hikers and then four new hikers. Mm-hmm. So before we left um, for the trail, I think one of the biggest questions that I was fielding was how to put the snowshoes on your pack. Everybody had the spikes and everybody's ready to go. And honestly, it wasn't really a a huge snowshoe day, but nonetheless, people were encouraged to bring them just to get used to carrying them and everything else. Uh, But that was a big challenge for some folks, including myself. It's never easy. Exactly. I think there's like, there's four real ways that you can mount your snowshoes on the backpacks. And Mm -hmm. it's really, it's really dependent on your backpack. I think that in, if you have side straps, I think the easiest way to mount them is to do one on each side of your backpack. um, And then you can cinch them in. That's how I used to do it in my Deuter Mm -hmm. backpack. I could just basically cinch them into the side straps the down part of that is that you no longer have access to your water bottles if you want to use those water bottle carriers. Exactly, right. It's a trade-off. Um, yeah. The second most common method is that if you have some sort of a backpack with a with a pocket, um, I think the Ospreys have that. I know my, my Hyperlite has that pocket, so I'm able to just put my um, snowshoes in that back pocket. Yeah. The downside of that is that 
I carry a like a, a closed cell um, sleeping pad, and I can't put that in my back pocket, which is where I usually put it. Mm-hmm. I actually just put it inside my backpack, so it's not a big deal. But it, it, it is this trade offs. The third way that a lot of people will do it is if you have straps on top, you can you can basically put it on top and then stomp. I think the way you do it is you put it like kind of in the middle, but like oh, you do it like across, so it's like perpendicular on your backpack, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have two methods. I usually stuff them on the sides, the side pockets, and then cinch them at the top. Um, mm-hmm. Saturday, I was rushing to get up with you guys, so I just put them in between the brain and the lower third zipper access pocket of my pack. So it was right in the middle, sort of resting right above my foam pad. And I just cinched them down really tight and just, <laughs> it looks sort of ridiculous. It looks sort of like the Christmas tree hanging off the back of my truck. It was like <laughs> the pack was six feet long behind me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, there's no right or wrong answer. That's, I guess, the point is that whatever works for you is is fine. As far as you, you'll just you'll see a million different variations on how to put your ba- your um, snowshoes on. Yeah, on your pack. Right. Um. So yeah. So we headed out. Like I said, we and the, the ground rules were that we we basically had a lead hiker who was in front setting the pace. Then we had, so I was in the lead, Stomp, you were the, you were the, the last hiker, so you were the sweep, mm-hmm. and then Shandy, oh no, Shandy was the, the, the sweep, right? Well, I, w- I was more or less the sweep all day, um, but there was Shandy also as a backup, she was catering to some of the folks in the middle, and then Mike yep. was the turnaround, the designated turnaround person in case somebody had to turn back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we had we had this idea basically that if we had somebody that wasn't feeling it and wanted to turn back, we would continue to take the full group out, but we would put the if the person was feeling fine and they just didn't want to keep going, then Mike was ready to just sort of turn back and hike slowly back down with them with the understanding that like there was going to be other groups coming up the trail, so yeah. there was no risk in doing that. You know, sure. normally I would say you never want to abandon somebody, but if you do have it set up where there's an agreement where you've got, you know, experienced hiker that's going to go back and agree to stay with somebody and as long as there's no medical issues, I think that's okay. Oh yeah, that was fine. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, so um, we headed up. Uh, I didn't know. I guess the one thing I was a little bit nervous about Stomp is I didn't know what everybody's comfort level was with pace. Mm-hmm. We had four newer hikers, and um, they all. I think I stayed at about a mile per hour going uphill. Yeah. And the one thing I struggled with was like I didn't want to continuously just look back to see if like the the group was breaking up. Yeah. I felt like the first half of it, or at least until we got to Mispa cut off like the group was pretty much comfortable at the pace that we went at and stuck together right yeah and i was surprised because i mean we really didn't take too many breaks if the if we did take a break it was fairly brief we took more breaks after the Mis- mitzvah junction but the first yes. half we were just motoring so yeah <clears throat> i was pretty observant i really wanted to make sure that you know the newer members um could handle the pace and they weren't overdoing it or just trying to keep up with the group. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. and I think the nice thing is that later on when we made it past Mizpah hut, 
I think I st- I kept the same general pace, and I do tend to. I, I normally I would hike a little bit faster than we went. Honestly, not that much faster. But the good thing was is that we did start to see some breaks in the group, and I think this is something to keep in mind if you're with a group is that stop was really good about sort of like yelling up and say like as soon as the group started like having some significant separation. When I say significant, like maybe ten to fifteen feet between one one set of hikers and then the other stomp was actually pretty good about saying like hey mike just a heads up let's take a break yeah and i remember you doing that like a couple of times towards the end because i wasn't able to really pay attention to that and then right. i purposely sort of did longer breaks to just say like okay let's make sure that you know we're giving is you know because we all felt pretty good we were all pretty warm mm-hmm. so we could afford to do the longer breaks but i right. i think that's a piece of advice i would say to people that are hiking in a group like this is that whoever's in the back have them be in charge of calling the break in theory you would think the lead person would be the one in charge of it but i think the back person is the better one because they can see what's going on yeah and i i really made that sort of my mission on that day because i really wanted to adhere to that group ethos don't let the group break up but if if somebody's going a little slower make sure that person's with another person and i think that's what's nice about you know the the being in the back and um you know it happened to a degree as we were going up but we we found a pace towards the back for the slower folks and uh worked out great yeah yeah and i like i basically i i stopped a couple times i was like i'm gonna eat because I wanted to encourage people to eat. And then the other cool thing is that we had, uh, Shandy has this awesome dog, Sage, who has yeah. done all the 4,000 footers, and Sage was with us. And when we had breaks, like I could just, Sage liked to, to play um, catch the stick. Sage liked to play <laughs> no give backs. So we would just be playing with the dog. So that entertained us pretty much while we were resting. Because we would do like five, 10 minute rest, I would say, right? Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, so it worked out good. So I these are all things I hadn't even considered about when we when we were planning the hike, but it mm-hmm. was it was a lesson learned is that the back person should be the one calling the break so that they can see when people are starting to separate in the group. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then Stomp, do you want to say tell tell the story about how we picked up? So we started with eight hikers. We actually picked two hikers up at the Mizpah cutoff. Um, yeah, maybe maybe keep their names newer hikers private, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but it was really interesting because um, I'm going to sort of tie this into the the future tie episode, and I'll try to be brief. But when we were at the Mitzpah Junction cutoff, uh, two younger hikers, um, I don't know, maybe in their late teens, early twenties, poor judge of age. They were. Um, I think I picked up. They were sixteen. Okay. Okay. So they were fairly young. Um, 16, 17. They, they walked up upon the junction and it was clear to me by body language and uh, just their mannerisms that they weren't quite sure where they were going. And just looking at what they had on for gear, it was sort of, sort of setting a signal in my mind, like, mm, I should keep an eye on these two folks. And I ended up, along with another member or two, saying, hey, um, where are you going? Pierce. Okay, it's that way. So it was the other direction. So they were making the f- the first wrong turn, and we corrected that. Um, they continued up trail, and within a minute or two, you you had stepped off for a moment. Um, 
we, we caught up with them again and they were having issues with uh, balling on their spikes and um, gave them a quick little lesson, like, you know, whack the side of the tree, that type of thing. And um, at that point, I just inserted myself and said, hey, why don't you join us? <laughs> so it was really cool. So, and they were relieved. They seemed relieved, like, oh yeah, that's great. So this ended up being their third winter hike. They're avid you know, warmer weather hikers, but this is sort of new for them. And as many listeners know, winter hiking is a whole different ball game. It's a deeper, steeper learning curve. So I was relieved that they joined us. And, um, you know, along the way, we talked about all kinds of things in terms of preparedness. And I would intermittently just ask, oh, you, do you have this and that? And, um, you know, they, they actually were fairly well prepared, which was a good thing. I just didn't know what was in that little pack and this and that, but I'm always thinking about that stuff. So, uh, ended up being really cool. Um, so where am I, where am I going with this? So I, I was picking their brains about where they get their information, um, on, you know, is it social media or is it peers and this and that, and this ties back to a recent conversation that is starting in the search and rescue community. We are looking at how do we make sure that we have a constant flow of the younger generations coming in to become volunteer search and rescue members? So that's part of it. When we started talking about that, it occurred to me that we should be looking outside of the teams as well to say, are we getting the hike safe and the education out to these younger generations? And um, that's a big question for me. And that's something that we hope to talk to Ty about uh, when he does make it on uh, eventually. And um, long story short, there's a ton of information. It's like, you know, just briefly, the Zoomers, they are on their phone 24-7. You know, they surprisingly, they do sort of like group dynamics, which is a great thing for like, say, hiking buddies. But the surprising thing in my research has been that, you know, Facebook is probably not going to be a source of education for them. It's going to be the short little 10, 15 second clips on YouTube or reels on Instagram. So, you know, we're going to talk about that because I think all of us as hikers have to figure out how how to educate the younger generation because I don't know, I don't want to paint them with a broad brush, but the recent events over the last several months have piqued my curiosity as to whether or not we're reaching people with the, the basic safety stuff or if it's just falling on deaf ears or if it's just not being heard at all. So it's going to be a good conversation when Ty comes in. Yeah, it's interesting. I noticed like when I was driving into Cambridge this week, like there was a big, um, we'll talk about billboards in a little while, but there was a big billboard um, with backcountry skiers basically skinning up Mount Washington Valley somewhere. Uh-huh. I was sort of thinking, I was like, well, you know, that's a great advertisement and it's, it's a beautiful picture, but I feel like that money might be better well spent to sort of just, you know, advertise hiking, but maybe the 10 essentials. Oh yeah. You know what I mean, versus I get it. They want tourism and they want people getting up there, but I do think there's a balance there and I don't think that they lead necessarily on their advertisements with safety, which maybe we need to start doing a little bit more. Well, that's the thing. I think, the younger generations, it may be, this is my hypothesis, are they seeing videos like that without any safety context whatsoever? And they say, oh, great, I'm going to go to RA, buy my, my skis or my boots, off I go. There's absolutely a gap there with uh, what people are receiving, in my opinion. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing too, Stomp, is like we hear this common issue comes up all the time where people will say like, oh, I saw someone on the trail that was unprepared. And honestly, I don't necessarily, I think that these two young people were, you know, they would have been, they they would have been okay. They were doing fine. They made it up to the Mizpah cutoff by themselves and they, they, they would have been okay ultimately. There's a ton of people out that day, but, um, we get questions from people that are like, oh, should I say something if I, you know, if I see somebody that's unprepared? And I think uh, I didn't really witness it too much, Stomp, because I think I was just a little bit too far away from it. But it sounds to me like, you know, you you and some of the folks in the back sort of struck up a rapport with them, non-threatening, non-judgmental, but, you right. know, offered them the opportunity to come along. They seemed to be happy to join us. Like they were... Especially when they figured out like, oh, this is a group that's just newer winter hikers that are learning. I think that they sort of hopped in. They were like, oh, this is perfect for us. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I, I, you know, I had um, a bit of a conversation with some of the hiking buddies, admin staff and, you know, the people that run the operation and um, really interesting topic about um, first line of defense in this battle is just the person you see on trail. And uh, it's a very interesting idea. And that probably is the best place to educate people is right on the trail when you see them. If it's like, you know, and then the question is like, when do you do that? Uh, you know, obviously, if there's some obvious, obvious problem, you have to speak up. Um, I, th- I I think in this this situation, it was appropriate the way it was like handled and just as you said you know they were prepared and probably would have been fine but when you do see those people that are just so clearly in over their heads um which is funny because on the way down we saw several people in cotton and just sitting in the snow yeah. i mean that that's the moment where you would probably say hey <laughs> what you doing where you going what's your plan yeah. how you feeling i mean i think it's a really valid point that's a great moment to teach people right there on trail. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was fun and they yeah. did fine and they were great. You know, we were joking around at the end and I gave them the, the slasher podcast stickers. And <laughs> I know that they, one of them hopped on the, the buddies group on Facebook. So even though oh, I, that's I cool. do think the young people might, might hop on Facebook more than we realize, but like they hopped on and you know, said thanks and happy to meet us. So yeah. I think now they know about the hiking buddies if they want to go out. I mean, I give them a ton of credit. Like I think we give a lot of, you know, the younger generation sort of this knock about like, Oh, all they're doing is like, on their phones and on video games. Like I love that they were out. It was awesome. Yeah. Oh, wait till we have this conversation because the differences in the generations are amazing. You know, yeah. the learning styles yeah, and this and that. So, yeah. Um, but just moving on to some of the, the highlights. So we hiked Mount Pierce. We went up the Crawford path. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of views. It was socked in, uh, but not too bad. There was no wind. Trail conditions were like basically maybe an inch of snow, so it was appropriate to wear snowshoes. It was microspikes the whole way up. Uh, snow base is pretty pretty light at this point, mm-hmm. and um, you know we all carried snowshoes, but we didn't use them. It's pretty crowded uh, when we got up to the summit. Like we didn't see a ton of people, but as we were coming down, like there was the other buddy groups coming up. There was an AMC group that was um, hosting a hike. They probably had like it looked like 15, 16 people with them, and then there was just various other people that were coming up. Um, 
you know, there was a couple of solo hikers coming by us and everything. So it was pretty busy up there. So it was really a good, good day to learn. It's just the only bummer was no views. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I, I really love those gray days. And you could see maybe half a mile onto the ridge towards Eisenhower, and that's sort of enough for me. I mean, yes. you, when you're surrounded by those trees that are covered in snow, it's just so beautiful. Oh, yeah. Looks like cotton candy, like white cotton candy oh, everywhere. Yes. It's so awesome. It yeah. was a good time. I'm glad you uh, pulled it together, and I'm glad I actually got to make it. Yeah, yeah. And I think a couple things I wanted to just sort of throw out there for for people when you're looking at whether it's a meetup group or a um, you know a Facebook group or you're just coordinating, I think a couple of things to look for when you're you're getting involved in these groups and you've never done it before is take a look at the people that are coordinating. Are they communicating? Are they being very clear about sort of the the group dynamics and the expectations? Are they very clear about the pace? Are they very clear about agreeing that everybody's going to stick together? And then if you're inexperienced, like, you know, if you if you bring it up to say I'm a newer hiker, are they open to that and are they, you know, supportive? So I think if you're getting a weird vibe from somebody or you feel like, you know, it's not a good fit, I think go with your instincts when it comes to this stuff, when it comes to meetup groups and, and different things. Because even... You know, you even see it on the buddy group sometimes where people will come on and say like, oh, yeah, I had a group that like just didn't stick together. As much as we try to advise them, it doesn't always stick. So you got to be careful. Sure. Yeah. I would do it again. Are you planning some more in the future? Yeah, I think I'm going to do something in March. So I'll uh, I'll take a look at my schedule and, and try to get another one. I definitely want to do one with a view this time. So I think if I if I post again, I'll be much more flexible to say like, hey, we're going to do it on Saturday, but if the weather doesn't look good, I may push to Sunday. So don't sign up unless you're flexible. Do you think uh, they'd be open to a mod, um, like a modest bush hut, bushwhack or anything like that? I think um, or, you just got to be clear. I think you would want to tell people like, look, you know, I want to experience people and you need to have, you know. Yeah. I, you know, uh, you know, face protection and, and you need to be comfortable with the idea of doing a, a modest bushwhack. Yeah. Maybe it's the wrong venue. I was thinking like a one-on-one bushwhack, like yeah, something really that. simple. Yeah, I'm sure there'd be people that'd be excited about it. Hmm. Cool. Um, I did want to give a shout out to a bunch of people here. So I talked about like, um, you know, all the new hikers that were there and, you know, looking to learn. It was great to make some new friends. So shout out to everybody that um, that that was getting out there to sort of, Learn, but uh, this wouldn't have been possible unless we had some really good, strong hikers to lead so that we could feel comfortable that everyone was going to be safe. So, Shandy, thank you so much. Yeah. Mike, thank you so much. And Stomp, thank you for our group. Um, the 830 group we had, um, Julie uh, and Heather that were leading that group. And then Nancy, I think, was, was also helping out. Nancy, um, you know, I think... Um, you know, was their third there. And then the 930 group, we had Andrew and Rhonda that were, um, were helping to, to organize that, that group as well. So, uh, really good. And, you know, Rhonda, Andrew, Julie, Heather, uh, Nancy, Mike, they're all involved in the, the buddies group, Shandy. So if you, if you see them posting any buddy hikes, I definitely highly recommend that you, you know, check it out and join them. They're all great people. We went to Reckless afterwards. I think almost everybody went to Reckless afterwards. Yeah, it was a nice crowd. 
Good yeah. time. Yeah, it was a good time. So um, I would say um, reflection from my perspective, it was a, a success. Oh, I would say so, for sure. I think everybody learned something in some manner, whether it be gear, yep. whether, you know, awesome. So I wanted to just do a quick update on a couple of our three unsolved mysteries in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. First one I wanted to update is Mara Murray. Um, so we are coming up on the 18th anniversary of Mara Murray gone gone missing. Yeah. All right. Um, want to recommend that people check out Mara has a sister, Julie. Julie has been running a TikTok account for the last year that has really kept the focus on the interest in finding Mara and it's also removed a lot of the distractions. I think Julie finally came to the realization that if she leaves the speculation up to the, the Reddit groups and the podcasters and uh, the book writers that, you know, she's really going to be dealing with a lot of like false information and stuff that really doesn't help. So Julie's sort of taken it upon herself to just sort of directly communicate to people that are interested and she's focusing on leads that actually matter versus like all this crazy speculation. You know, there's a lot of psychics up there. There's a lot of like conspiracy theorists, people pointing at the family and other things that just doesn't, isn't likely. So Shout out to Julie. I'll link her TikTok account um, on our show notes, but I wanted to just sort of talk a little bit about two things. One is that um, there are currently seven active billboards across Massachusetts, and I think into New Hampshire, that are asking for the public's help with information. So if you know anybody that knows anything about this case, or if you know anything about this case, you know, please check out those billboards. There's a number to the New Hampshire police that are investigating this that you can reach out to, um, but they're looking to see if they can generate some leads here. Okay. The other thing that has come up that's kind of interesting is that there is a new potential lead that is an old lead, actually. So Julie Murray had been going through some of the old police statements and had identified um, something that had happened the night that Mara had gone missing. So she went missing, I think, around 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock is when the police calls came in. Yeah. There's a police log entry about five hours after Mara disappeared where they identified a suspicious person in an area close to the crash site that was driving a white Jeep Cherokee, a Grand Cherokee. Mm-hmm. Um, this person was identified, the, the vehicle was identified by the Haverhill um, Police Department, and they had basically followed up a report of the suspicious vehicle. The chief of police at the time, Cecil Smith, he had attempted to try to speak to the driver at the time, but that driver had actually taken off. So they never actually got the information for the driver of the Grand Cherokee. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this particular lead is that when they looked at Mara's vehicle, so Mara had crashed into a snowbank. She had engaged with a, uh, a local resident who was a bus driver, um, gentleman by the name of Butch, and um, Butch had in- interacted with Mara. Mara had said that she was waiting for a tow truck or something not to call the police. There is some suspicion that Mara might have been drinking because there was alcohol found in her vehicle. Mm-hmm. Butch went back. Butch, Butch Atwood is his name. He went back to his house, told his wife what was going on. They called 911. The police came. Mara was no longer there. So um, 
the the vehicle was still there. One of the things that they found in the vehicle was a random car part, a car part. So they found this inside the vehicle. They took a look at the part, and it actually traces back to Chrysler as a manufacturer. So Chrysler is the company that actually manufactures Jeeps. Oh. So it could be that this part is ba- is from a Jeep Cherokee, Grand Cherokee. Um, the other thing about this hmm. is that there was a, a scuff mark in the back of Morris' car in the um, in on one of the bumpers that was white paint. So they're trying to figure out, like, okay, is there any more information they can gather about this white Grand Cherokee? Wow, that's really interesting. New Hampshire plate. So if anybody knows anyone that was around the Haverhill area that used to drive a white Grand Cherokee, um, definitely dig into it a little bit. I mean, they have records, DMV records. Yeah, yeah. They'll have to look into it a little bit more. I know there's a thread on Reddit about it. I I haven't dove into that piece of it yet. I mostly just looked at Julie's TikTok account, but I thought that was interesting. Oh, sure. The other interesting thing that she brought up was that she had done a video about a week ago back and she had indicated that um, somebody had asked some details about the dogs and what they use to identify Morris scent. The family has indicated that they, one of the things that they use to give the dogs a scent was a pair of gloves that were in the vehicle. The concern is that the family doesn't actually know whether or not Mara ever actually wore those gloves. I guess they were a new, um, a new gift and there were some pictures of her in cold weather where she wasn't even wearing the gloves. So Julie theorizes that it could be that they gave the dogs these gloves to get the scent for Ju- for Mara, and that Mara had never actually worn the gloves, so her scent may not have even been on them. Jeez. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so, for sure. Uh, keep the hope alive. I mean, I still think that it's very likely that she ran off into the woods. She ended up on somebody's private property and it just hasn't been searched. Wow. I have no idea. I mean, so many possibilities, so many different theories. It's intense, but it's heartbreaking. 18 years later, I can't, can't imagine. Yeah. Interesting. So the next one that I wanted to cover here is a case that, um, a young man by the name of Stefan Porus Sue. This is a young man out of uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, I believe. Okay. He had gone messing in 2019 over winter. So this was the, I don't know if you remember this one, Stomp, but Fishing Game had done a search based on um, potentially this person being spotted on the auto road during winter. I, I remember this one. Yeah. I remember this one. I so, okay. So there's been a little bit of it's a weird strange. development. I'm not... I'm a little uncomfortable even going down this path, but I figured it was worth just sort of talking about because it's interesting. Yeah. Um, So the original story was that uh, this young man had gone missing. He had come up to New Hampshire. He had bought some gear. They had like the receipts of the gear that he had bought to go hiking. He was like a newer hiker and... um, you know, he'd gotten an argument with his father on March 8th, 2019. And um, I guess he had been spotted in Chelmsford or something. And then eventually like made his way up to New Hampshire. His car was eventually found in Pinkham Notch for whatever reason. And I have not been able to pin this down, but for whatever reason, Fishing Game had, had initiated a search around the auto road area. And I remember at the time people were saying, yeah, he might've been spotted 
on the auto road. I also remember around that time an employee of the auto road coming on to the Facebook pages to remind people that you cannot hike up the auto road in winter conditions. Um, so I don't know if those are related or not, but Fish and Game had initiated a search, but they just didn't have a lot of information to go on. Um, and this person has never been located. Right. Um, his vehicle was located. The weird thing is, is that there was a cell phone ping in Chelmsford, Mass., like after he had supposedly gone missing, hmm. I think on or around March 10th as well. So... I think ultimately, like, they found his car on, like, March 18th or the 17th. So it was, like, a week later. So there was a big period of time where he had been missing and presumed to be hiking and and had gone missing. Now, the development that I find interesting is, and I don't want to give out a lot of detail here, but there is a, there was a, a summary on uh, on Reddit in the Unsolved Mysteries thread talking about uh, Stefan. Somebody had come on and had posted a flyer that's been going around Lowell, and that flyer is indicating that there was this, this was potentially uh, foul play involved in this, and that there, you know, that there's people that know more about this case than they're letting on in the local area where he lives. Okay. In Lowell. Which, if if this was in fact true, then it would seem to me that if that would indicate that um, potentially somebody might have dropped the car up in Pinkham. Yeah, like and an then maybe man. he was never even on the mountain. So who knows? Yeah, little diversion. <clears throat> yeah, That's which I found very interesting. So I don't know. The thing I'm curious about is what report Fishing Game got that that motivated them to start a search. I, I I haven't been able to find anything in news articles to to cover why they did that. Yeah, well, was there like a nine one one call or a family member? Maybe I don't know. I feel like That's somebody had said that like he had been sp- spotted on the auto road potentially, but I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to look at the old report if if it's out yeah. there. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that it's is interesting, weird. but it's it's an interesting little twist. Oh yeah, um, and. It's a there's a there's some flyers going around in Lowell. There's a picture of one on on the Reddit site. I'm not going to link to it because I just don't. I hesitate to. I don't want to be one of those sort of podcasters that's like blaming people and coming up with these crazy conspiracy theories. But yep. I just find it interesting that there was such a wide um, amount of time that had gone from the time that he had gone missing to the time that they had found the vehicle yeah. and it's just an interesting theory that like okay maybe there was foul play that happened closer to where he lived and that they used the sort of bringing the car up to pinkham notch maybe as the diversion i don't right, know right could be you have a uh, future in you know detective work here mike <laughs> not me not me but i think it's important like and again i don't know where the family stands on this i know that there's a facebook group that um, has been lightly active around like keeping his memory alive, but it just seems very sad that a young young person like that has been gone gone missing and yeah. no sign of him. And this, it's very rare that somebody's body isn't found when they go missing in the whites. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which is a segue to the the third 
um, Unsolved Mystery is, again, Michael Miller. We talked about him. This is a young man from, he was an MIT student that went missing in the early 80s. He had been hiking with two friends up Old Bridal, took off from his friends, and um, headed up, I think he went off trail, headed up a, a drainage. I'm assuming it would have been either um, Walker Brook, or, um, you know, there's basically one, two, three drainages on the way up to, uh, there's Lafayette Brook, Walker Brook, and then there's a brook in between those two, which I don't, it's not named on my map, so I don't know what it's called. Um, oh, it's also called Walker Brook, interestingly enough. Hmm. Yeah, Lafayette Brook. Walker Brook, and then Dry Brook. So one of those drainages is probably where he went, but right. he just hasn't been found, which I think is pretty fascinating. I mean, we're talking 40 years now. Well, who's looking, though? I mean... Nobody's looking. Yeah, right? I mean, it's just such a massive area. Uh, yeah, that's a shame. Apparently, he was wearing a leather jacket. Do you think yeah, would a I leather jacket survive the elements? I think so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder, like, if anybody was out hiking and they found a leather jacket, like, years ago and just didn't think anything of it and just hmm. the evidence is gone now. Hmm. Well, certainly the buttons would be there. It would be weathered as hell, but it'd be something. Yeah. Interesting. So, hmm. do you know? Very, do you know the weather yeah. during that period of time or is that way way back there i mean 40 years back no what happened in this case is that it was um it was in november i believe and um it was a reasonable day from a weather perspective but what happened is he went missing and that night a snowstorm came rolling in and it was like crazy like whiteout conditions and Mm. really tougher than the search so they were searching for like four or five days in really tough conditions um, because it was basically like the first set of snowstorms that came in and it was it was just really tough conditions for them wow jeez yeah so a lot of unsolved mysteries in New Hampshire Mm mm-hmm search and rescue news but before we do that i think you got one more commercial you gotta do (laughs) sweet beginnings daycare sweet beginnings daycare is a new hampshire state licensed child care oh by the way do you uh babysit cats by any chance daphne's driving me crazy uh (laughs) i see daphne oh my goodness she's she's nuts okay yeah so they are a licensed new hampshire state child care provider that offers care for children and maybe cats, if I can convince them to do that, from six weeks to 12 years with flexibility in before and after school care as well. Sweet Beginnings aims to instill a love for learning by providing a safe and positive experience within a loving and warm environment. Sweet Beginnings Daycare believes this is a good foundation to teach children in order to prepare them for their future. 
For more information, contact Sweet Beginnings at 603-568-4530. Visit them at Sweet Beginnings Daycare on Facebook or email Shandy at Shandy Elliott at Outlook.com, and that's S-H-A-N-D-I-E-L-L-I-O-T-T. Get those kids babysat. <laughs> I got to talk to Shandy a bit about her business. She's doing well, but uh, you can imagine that's it's, uh, an interesting day being surrounded by so many young ones, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I remember. So my kids are like two years apart. So I had mm-hmm. three, uh, it would f- a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn. So, um, but I, that was a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, you you know even better than I do. Oh hell yeah, yeah, yeah. So hang in there, Shandy. Doing yep. a good job. Yes. Yep. Um, all right, so moving on to search and rescue news. We don't have anything local, thank God. Mm-hmm. So um, this first one is a dog story here, Stomp, and it's in California. So I think California's gonna, California and Hawaii are going to keep us busy. So a California <laughs> dog owner has an Apple AirTag to thank for being reunited with her Australian Shepherd <laughs> after the pup was swept away by floodwaters. Waters. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, Emily Brill was walking one-year-old Seamus in San Bernardino County on Monday. I think they're getting a lot of rain out there. Oh, hell yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So a dog got away from her and ended up in a flood control basin churning with swift-moving floodwaters, which swept the pooch away before the owner could grab him. So the water was going fast. Um, The dog just put one paw in the water and was off to the races. So um, (laughs) fire department was dispatched and began scouring the area in search of Seamus. I guess the owner put a, um, or I guess guess there's a detailed Facebook post on here, but I guess while looking through the area, um, they had flagged down, they had been, the the police had been flagged down by people that had reported seeing a dog floating down a, a channel and hearing it bark. So there's a bunch of photos here. So this is basically one of those like, do you ever see grease stomp where they do the race of the cars and that right. like um, dry drainage? Yeah, it's it's basically that, but when it floods. Yeah. Crazy. But hey, yeah. good story. Yeah. Little yeah. So the witness, they followed Seamus and noticed that the, the canine had found a way out of the water and into some access tube. Um, I guess the dog was atta- uh, equipped with an Apple Air tag and a conventional ID tag. So that was able to, I guess, rescuers were able to pinpoint the location of the dog. So the dog was drenched and dirty, but otherwise okay. The pictures are amazing. It's a great story. Something positive for uh, use for the Apple AirTag other than spying on your your spouse or something like that. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And all the firefighters (laughs) getting their picture taken with the dog. Right. So... So, oh man! Good. Um, all right, this next one here is. Well, wait a minute. Is this the? Um, you've got a hiker died after a seven hundred foot slide. But didn't we do this last week? This isn't the. I think this is the same story we did last week, right? Well, I I can't be a hundred percent sure because I deleted a story that captures two or three of these events. So this may be a new one. Yeah, no, this is the same one we did. Okay. So there was a, like a, um, a, 
I guess there's like three shoots here that um, are on this Mont Baldy. Matter of fact, there's a couple of things going on. We haven't, we didn't pull this article, but there's an actor that's missing on Mont Baldy right now that we'll cover next week. But um, this is this is basically a recap of the story of the hiker that slid down about 700 feet that we covered last week. So she unfortunately passed away. She was a pretty well-known hiking influencer out there. And unfortunately, I think she's a 56-year-old um, female hiker that passed away after sliding down about 700 feet. That wasn't the uh, the influencer, was it? Yeah. It was. Yeah. Okay, because there have been others. Because I deleted a story earlier that was talking about just the region trying to to educate hikers about the dangers up there because too many people are slipping and sliding away. Yeah, there's a lot going on in Mont Baldy at this point, so yeah. I think it's a, it's a good place to avoid unless you really know your stuff. Yeah, definitely. Right now. And then, Stomp, are you doing this to me on purpose? No, but I, stuff? I found it fascinating because I do my weekly you know, scouring for stories and Hawaii showed up at least a dozen times. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I'm going to get my daughter. So my daughter's there right now. She's do she's on a school project for eight weeks. I'm going to have her come on. Yeah, and do some recaps of her hiking when um, when she gets I back. I hope so. That'd be so, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. She's been out already. She's done like I think two or three hikes. So I, I think you know she's been she's pretty good. I mean, she's got the Gaia app. She's got the paper map. She's she's she knows what she's doing. So knock on wood, she won't get in trouble. But. Mm-hmm. Um, Stomp's got three search and rescue. So this first one is uh, Stairway to Heaven is this like, it's like this really well-known hike. And I think part of it may be closed off. I think the stairway part of it is closed off, but it's called Stairway to Heaven. Um, it's the haiku stairs that they, they actually call them Stairway to Heaven. But um, Honolulu Fire Department reported that a 911 call came in Around 1230, 32-year-old male um, had become lost and disoriented while on a hike that started at 830. Uh, the fire department responded to the call. And I feel like in Hawaii, like it, they don't even mess around. Like everything is helicopter-based with their rescues. <laughs> it seems that way. <laughs> I mean, and I just think they have a lot of helicopters on the island. But Sure. Um, so the call came in at 1249, actually. First rescue unit arrived at 107, and a landing zone was established nearby. And um, rescue personnel were transported to the hiker. He was secured and transported back to the landing zone by 138. So this is within 45 minutes of the <laughs> call coming in. They had a helicopter, and they had him in the helicopter. Yeah. Oh, I was just laughing at the uh, typo. Recuse personnel. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Those are yeah, the people that rescue. recuse themselves from the rescue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then we've got another story here. I think this is a different island. Hikers died at a viewing platform at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. 70-year-old from Arizona passed away uh, Sunday around 11 p.m. at Kianakokai Viewing Outlook. Um, I guess this was a medical incident. So uh, other park visitors called 911, tried to administer CPR, but the man was pronounced dead at the scene and taking, taken north to the Hilo Medical Center. Um, sounds like he was believed to have died from natural causes. Yeah. Um, the Kianokai Outlook gives visitors a view into the volcano's <sighs> crater, which was covered by lava flow. In 1977, the National Park Service suggests that the eruption may have been covered, um, 
a quarry that was a source of hard rock used to make many, many tools such as axes. So it erupted in 1974. Uh, covering the crater with about 20 feet of lava, so it bring it bring in the it had brought the floor up to its current level. But interesting, um, right? It's only a mile hike, so it sounds like he just you know not a bad place to pass away, I guess, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Um, and then this last one is from Hawaii, and then we're going to wrap up the show here. So firefighters airlift an injured hiker from the uh, Nuanahu Trail. <laughs> So this is in Honolulu. I love listening to you tackle these Hawaiian terms. I'm completely BSing the pronunciations, but I'm like, I'm being confident about it. So no one will question. Yeah, it's super cool. It's great. Yes. Yeah. Nuanahu, a 45 year old hiker who sustained a shoulder injury after he went off trail. Five units and 16 firefighters responded to a call. Um off of the uh, Lululamu Falls Trail shortly after 7.50 a.m. And um, fire rescue crews located this guy at 8.25 a.m. And uh, the fire department's... (laughs) The fire department... The fire department's. <clears throat> oh, dude! You choking on some lava? You have to edit this. Yeah, I'm just choking on my own <laughs> language here. That's okay. <coughs> We're both. Dying. The fire department's Air One helicopter took the hiker to a landing zone near the Board of Water Supply Reservoir, where care was um, transferred. Where the, where the hiker was transferred to. The emergency medical services. So again, the Hawaii, it seems like they immediately just grab a helicopter and pull, pick people out of the woods. Yeah. I wonder how many people they get per year. Like New Hampshire gets what? 2.5 million. Hawaii must be oh. much, much more. So, and I'll have Caroline on to give a recap, but so she's, she's staying in Waikiki yeah, and she's in like one of these high rises. And essentially, you know, when she looks out the back of her high rise like she she, the front is the beach the back is just like mountains so it's just basically the whole it seems like the whole island is just surrounded by mountains so there has to be like miles and miles of trails that people can go go hike and you can see the ocean from all these different angles Mm -hmm. it's amazing so i mean that's just one island that's oahu um that doesn't count like the islands where the volcanoes are on either well, how long is she out there for? Eight weeks. Eight weeks. So she's doing like a work project for school, which is she's living her best life. Yeah. Air quotes. Parentheses. Air quotes. Work. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Work. She's doing like some project um, for a botanical garden, like to do with like marketing huh. and um, getting people to like sort of be more dispersed around the the area of the botanical garden. So it sounds like a pretty cool project. Wow, that's neat. Yeah. Time of your life, kid. But anyway, Stomp, that's all we got. So episode 89 is a wrap. It's a wrap. Creep. We did the buddy hikes. We talked about um, search and rescue. We talked about missing people. <laughs> we, did, we did a lot. Well-rounded. And we talked yes. about pop culture. Yes. We'll see you next week. Later. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.